We're in a standalone Palm Sunday. It's not even a mini-series. It's just a, a one-off sermon today. We're looking at John's Gospel. Um, John chapter 12, you can find that on page 5 of this bulletin. So we'll read here in a moment. As you're turning there, also if you have a Bible, be good to open a Bible. There's going to be a, one or two other passages I'm going to reference. Um, or Bible on your phone works as well. I want you to think about the last time you saw the ocean. Um, maybe it's a few weeks ago over spring break. Um, maybe more recent than that. My family and I saw the ocean over spring break. And um, anytime I see the ocean, I am struck with a paradox. Um, a paradox, here's the definition. Um, it's a situation or person or thing that combines contradictory features. Paradox is a situation or person or thing that combines contradictory features. It's like when two things you don't think should go together, go together. That's a paradox. Um, okay, so the ocean to me gives us a paradox. The paradox is this. It is both terrifyingly powerful and it is incredibly peaceful. Um, the power of the waves crashing in, um, if you're in the water, you feel the undertow, you feel that current out there, the, the way the waves can totally just um, reshape um, the beach and the sand on a daily basis. So you feel that power and the calming, peaceful rhythm of wave after wave coming ashore. Um, the ocean is a paradox of power and peace. And Paradoxes can be really hard for us because they for, force us into a both-and mindset where we're holding tensions together rather than an either-or mindset. Okay, this passage, it gives us a very important and beautiful paradox in how we understand Jesus. He is both humble and he is king. And this can be a stretch for us. We like the either-or. He is either humble or he is king. But holding together the tension of humble king is really hard for us. And it was hard for those in our passage this afternoon. That's what this text is all about. The kind of king Jesus is and then how we respond to him. Let me read this for us. John 12, 12 through 19. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and it had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken to us. Oh, how we need you to speak to us right now. Uh, we need your Holy Spirit to bring these words to life, to actually enter into us and to work on our hearts. We long for transformation. We don't want to be the same as we have been. We want to say no to sin and yes to you more and more. And so would you use your word right now to make that happen by your Holy Spirit in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, two headings this afternoon that I want to think about this. I want to talk about the arrival 
of the humble king and responding to the humble king. So the arrival, we're going to kind of dig into what the text says and what it meant in its context. And then we're going to look at some specific responses to Jesus in this passage. And we're going to use that sort of as a jumping off diagnostic for how we have responded to Jesus. So the arrival and then the responding uh, to the humble king. So first, the arrival of the humble king. So very beginning of the passage, verse 12, it says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. All right, so there's this large crowd. They'd gathered to celebrate the Passover. This was the annual Jewish celebration where God's people got together to remember how he delivered them out of Egyptian slavery. It was an annual feast, a really big deal. Lots of people were gathered in our passage here. Some think it was like over 2 million people. We don't know exactly. We do know it was a lot. Um, And this large crowd, they hear that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. How do they greet him? Let's talk about the greeting. Look at verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Okay, so they, they get these palm branches. They go out to meet Jesus. Palm branches would have been everywhere. Um, So the crowd could have easily grabbed a branch, gone to meet him. There was a reason, though, they went for palm branches. Um, Palm branches at this point had become a national symbol of hope and victory for the Jewish people. If they were victorious in battle, they would celebrate by waving palm branches. There were different historical artifacts and things that would have an emblem of a palm branch on it that that meant nationalistic victory. And so that's, that is what is ringing true for this crowd as they greet Jesus. Um, they, they grab these palm branches and they're, they're waving palm branches in, the, in, the, in this moment. And Jesus is coming and they shout, Hosanna. If you've ever been to church the weekend before Easter, especially this weekend, Palm Sunday, you've likely heard this word, Hosanna. And maybe you feel like you should know what this word means, or maybe you should even say this word, but no one really says this word because it's just kind of an odd word in our context. What does it mean? Hosanna literally means give salvation now. Give salvation now. So they have victorious palm branches, they're waving them, and they're yelling, give salvation now. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So they're welcoming Jesus as king into Jerusalem. They're using this national, um, culturally common, victorious, royal symbol to do so by waving the palm branch. And if you're reading this and you're a follower of Jesus today, you have the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the Bible, and you're seeing this and you're like, yes, here comes the king, bring salvation, he's victorious, amen, lift up the palm branches, here we go. All right, that's not necessarily what the crowds were thinking at this moment. We actually don't know, obviously, what was going on in their minds, but it is likely that there was a lot of misunderstanding here, especially based on how quickly, if you think about the week ahead's events, how quickly the crowds are going to turn just five days later on him. It's likely that many in the crowds were thinking that Jesus was coming as king in a very earthly, nationalistic sense to bring, what, freedom from Roman rule, to wage war, and to ascend to a political position of power. It's likely that they didn't fully get it. They were misunderstanding what was happening here. All right, think back to when the movie The Matrix came out. It was 1999. Um, Basically, it took the world by storm. These are 1999 numbers, but they made it on a budget of 63 million, and it grossed 460 million. That sounds like a lot of money now, but that was 1999. 
Um, critics loved it. The Academy loved it. It won uh, four Academy Awards. There's a sequel. I think there have been lots of sequels. Um, but there's a sequel that came out in 2003 that was even more successful. People loved it. And not just like people people, but like film people um, really got into the sequel. And I'll never forget, I was on a beach trip um, with a college ministry uh, when this movie came out. And um, I was with some friends who were like so um, excited to go see this, this movie. And I was like, great, let's go. And so we went to this very um, low-budget movie theater in Panama City, Florida. I remember sitting awkwardly on the front left and my feet were sticking to the floor of the movie theater because it had like soda and like popcorn and debris from, you know, being a movie theater. And so I'm sitting there and, and, we, and we watch it and I totally didn't get it. I totally did not get it. My friends, we walked out afterwards. They were going on about Neo and, and Morpheus or whatever their names are and about how great it was, and I didn't get it. And I still don't get it. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Matrix fans. But the writers of, of The Matrix clearly had a, a storyline that they were trying to communicate, and apparently most of the world got it. Um, I didn't. Um, I misunderstood the whole thing. Many of the crowds in our passage misunderstood the type of king that Jesus was and what was being communicated to them in this moment. And how he arrived actually explains some of their misunderstanding. Let's talk about the donkey. Verse 14, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So John tells us that Jesus finds a donkey and sits on it. Okay, zoom out a little bit. John's Gospel, it's one of four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's what starts the New Testament. Um, this story of Jesus, what's called Jesus' triumphal entry is in all four of the Gospels. Not every story is in all four of the Gospels. This one is. And so you can find it in the other Gospel accounts. And you might have read those accounts. You might actually be familiar with them. There's a part that is not in John's gospel, it's in the other gospels. And you could call it like the, the donkey retrieval mission, where, where Jesus, remember, he sends the disciples ahead. So you're going to find this donkey, and he sort of gives them all these specific instructions for the donkey retrieval. John doesn't cover that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all cover that. Doesn't mean that, that John's story is conflicting or anything. It's still true, it still happened. John just did not think it was important to include in this account. Still true, still happened. John didn't include that detail in his writing, but the outcome is the same. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And this was not random. It wasn't like Jesus was like scrambling for transportation and there's a donkey, so I'm going to ride the donkey. This had actually been um, um, promised 500 years before this. 500 years before this. That's what John is quoting in our passage. Zechariah chapter 9. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Zechariah chapter 9. If not, maybe look there on your phone. If not, I'm going to read it. Zechariah is what we would call a minor prophet from the Old Testament. I'm going to read the fuller reference, Zechariah 9, 9 through 11. I'm doing this, I want to dig into this for a moment because this is actually going to help us understand the kind of king that Jesus was. And it's going to help us understand the context, like this is what was being advertised about who the Messiah King would be that they were to understand, which they missed. Zechariah 9, 9 through 11. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, 
and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall seek peace to the nations. Uh, His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. What's what's Zechariah saying to us about this king? Writer D.A. Carson gives us three things that this should help us know about what Jesus is going to be like as king. First, he says this this coming gentle king is associated with the end of war. This king is going to be all about the end of war. Um, Jesus was not coming to wage actual physical war. Spiritual war, yes, all day. Physical war, no. He comes to bring peace in that sense, which was very different than most kings in this day. Usually powerful kings waged war, and by the way, their triumphal entry would come on a war horse rather than a donkey. Kings of this day would take nations that dominate them, conquer them, pillage, acquire land, take possessions. Not Jesus. He comes in humility and gentleness and peace. So this king is connected with the end of war. What else does he say? He says this coming gentle king is associated with the proclamation of peace to all nations. All nations. Okay, this would be a king with worldwide reign, which would have been shocking, not just for Israel, not just for God's Old Testament people, but for all the nations. His reign as king was going to transcend oceans and cultures and languages. End of war, peace for all nations. Third, The coming gentle king is associated with the blood of God's covenant that somehow means release for prisoners. That's what Zechariah had said. That's what God's people were queued up to to know that this coming king would somehow mean freedom for prisoners. Okay, that was what Zechariah tells us to expect, that this humble king brings peace, that peace is for all nations. He comes to set prisoners free by shedding his blood. All on that from this one quick reference from Zechariah 9. And this donkey is signaling all of that because that was the fulfillment of it. This donkey is telling us the kind of king that Jesus is. He's a gentle king. He's a humble king. That's the arrival. The humble king arrives. What are some of the specific responses we see to this humble king? I'm going to highlight some of the responses from our passage And then we're going to do sort of a diagnostic to see which resonates the most with each of us. So keep that in mind and maybe even kind of jot some notes down as we're going through this. And here's the first response. The first response is those who are confused about Jesus. Confused about Jesus. Um, If you're like me and my experience with the Matrix, then this one is comforting to you. It's especially comforting because of who was confused about Jesus. Look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So his disciples, his friends, the followers who were closest to him, who had sort of the backstage pass into all things Jesus and his teaching during this time where they would, he would have like a big public teaching and the disciples would go off with him on the side and he would kind of like decode it. He would say, okay, here's what that meant. So they, were, they like, if anyone should know, it was them. Um, but they were confused. They didn't understand it, at least initially. But John tells us that later, he fast forward, he zooms out here as the writer and says, after Jesus was glorified, that is after he was resurrected, they remembered, oh yeah, these things were written. And this is what 
actually happen. They would eventually get it. Uh, one of my favorite things to say in a conversation where I'm, where I'm trying to get some clarity is um, help me understand. Um, I, I remember I heard a seminary professor offer that one up, and I just like tucked it away as a little gem to use in the future. Hey, help me understand. Um, it's as though the, the disciples need to circle back with Jesus and say, okay, all right, king on a donkey. All right, help me understand. What's going on here? Um, they were confused. The disciples did not understand, and that was their response. And hopefully that's comforting to you because they were the ones who were the closest to Jesus. They were confused, first response. All right, second response. Um, this is where we get into the crowds. Um, there are those who are celebrating Jesus and those who are um, curious about the hype around Jesus. So first we'll talk about um, the crowds. There's actually, um, it's likely that the, in verses 17 and 18 in our passage, those are two different crowds being spoken about, and I'll explain that more in a moment. So the crowds in verse 17 were those celebrating Jesus. Verse 17, it says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Okay, this is referring to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Happens in John 11. Amazing story if you've never read it. This crowd was there to, to witness that, to see that happen. Um, and it's so amazing the, the, where, when Jesus does it, it says that many who saw him raise Lazarus from the dead believed. And so it's likely that those were some of the, those people who are now here with him at his entry into Jerusalem. And what does it say? They continue to bear witness. That means that they continue to, to celebrate Jesus, to point to Jesus, to point uh, all things back to him. So that's one of the crowds in verse 17. They're bearing witness. Then it's likely verse 18 is referring to a different crowd. This crowd it would be curious about the hype around Jesus. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. They didn't see the miracle that Jesus had done, raising Lazarus from the dead, but they had heard about it. So these are the ones who, who, who like hear about the hype and they're like, all right, I got to go check this out. I got to see this. Um, maybe you've seen like old uh, footage of the Beatles um, playing a concert or Michael Jackson maybe or New Kids on the Block or Justin Bieber, whichever cultural reference is more fitting for you. I'm not equating all those four musicians as being equal. Um, but whatever resonates more with you. Um, and then you see the response of crowds when they see one of these musicians and there's like literally like tears screaming, total meltdown because they finally have like, they, they've, they've responded to the hype of this musician and now they're seeing them in the flesh for the first time. All right, we don't know if it was that level of excitement with these crowds in Jesus, but they literally dropped what they were doing and they were traveling to go see and listen and consider. There was hype around Jesus, which we see that here, and that was actually pretty common in the Gospels, where he would try to get away on his own, and because of the hype around him, people would chase after him to go see him. So that was the second crowd that we saw, curious about the hype. All right, here's um, the, the third or fourth, depending on how you count, uh, response to Jesus. There were those who were threatened by Jesus. Those who were threatened by him. Verse 19 so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Uh, Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day, and they had a lot of power and a lot of control, a lot of political clout. They kind of like, in all sort of like things religious, like they ran the show. They made the call on stuff. And as you read the Gospels, you'll see there's ongoing conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. And in this verse... Uh, they actually show their cards. What are they saying? They're afraid to lose power. They're afraid 
to lose power. And they're, they're using this very um, hyperbolic and exaggerated language where it's kind of like, like the whole world's gone after him. We're gonna, you're not going to gain anything. The whole world's gone after him. When I read that, it made me think of some of the hyperbolic language I get from my own children in my house. If we commit the cardinal sin of not letting my kids have dessert, it, the, I, we get like, the, oh, you never let us have dessert. You always say no. And of course, that's not true. That's exaggerated. They get dessert like the majority of the time, but they're convinced in that moment that they never do, and we always say no. It's exaggerated. It's overstated. That's what the Pharisees are saying to one another. The whole world has gone after him. You can feel the frustration, though, behind that, that, that hyperbole. Jesus is a threat to their religious power because he was not what they expected as king. And he would threaten their power. Those are the responses. All right, what about us? How are we responding to Jesus? This is actually a major part of our growth as we follow Jesus. Do we understand Jesus on his terms or have we misunderstood him? Listen to what Dane Ortland says about that. He says that's essentially what the Christian life is. He says the Christian life from one angle is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. And this is hard work. It's hard work to have our views of God corrected as we grow as followers of Jesus. Let's do that now. Okay, let, let, let's see where you find yourself. What's resonating most with, most with you? Maybe you're like the disciples and you're confused about Jesus. Maybe like them, you are all in for following him. You're like, yes, sign me up. I'm, I, want, I want him to, um, to be my rabbi, my teacher. I'm going to be his disciple. I'm going to follow him. Um, yet you feel legitimately confused. Um, you feel very in process when it comes to your beliefs. All right, if this is you, two invitations for you. If you feel confused about Jesus, the first invitation is for you to go all in with a local church. Go all in with a local church. Of course, I'd love for that to be our church family, uh, but any Jesus teaching uh, Bible believing local church. Um, This beautiful, messy, awkward gathering uh, of believers is the place that God has given us to grow together. If you're confused, go all in with a local church. Don't try to sort out your confusion on your own. Do that in community, in a local church. Secondly, here's the invitation. Ask someone to mentor you in the faith. If you feel like really new to this stuff and you read the Bible and you just feel confused, reach out to someone around you. They don't have to be a superstar but just someone who's further down the road with Jesus that seems solid and their life is attractive to you, to just say, okay, um, I am drawn to how you are walking with Jesus. Would you mentor me? I think you'll actually be surprised on how they respond. I think they would be very open to that. So maybe that's you, confused about Jesus. Or maybe you resonate with one of the crowds. Maybe the first crowd that is celebrating Jesus. Um, If that's you, what you need to hear is like, keep it up. It says they, they, were, they kept bearing witness. Keep bearing witness. Um, double down on thinking through every area of your life from sunup to sundown on how you can continue to point to Jesus in everything. Through your friendships, through dating, through marriage, through parenting, work, finances, hobbies, rest, phone use, leisure, you name it. Um, how can all of your life continue to point to Jesus? Keep celebrating, keep bearing witness. That's like the keep up the good work response. 
Maybe that's where you find yourself right now. And if, if, you, if so, praise God. What a great feeling. Maybe you're like the second crowd. You're curious about the hype around Jesus. Um, maybe you don't, uh, this, this feels new to you. And maybe you know someone who is what you would consider a very committed follower of Christ. And they're kind of all in. And, and maybe you've heard about the church they're going to. And it's just like, there's like hype. And you're just curious about that. Um, if that's you, my invitations to you would be very similar for those who are confused about Jesus. Um, to not isolate yourself in your curiosity or to go explore that on your own, but to do that in the context of a local church body. Do that with other followers of Jesus and let them explain his ways to you. Also, ask someone to mentor you. Say, hey, I'm really curious about all the hype around Jesus and how he has transformed you. I want to hear more. Ask for a mentor. So maybe you connect with the crowds either who are celebrating Jesus or curious about the hype. Or lastly, maybe you're like the Pharisees that feel threatened by Jesus. And this one is a little bit different for us. I doubt you're in a place where you are worried about your religious political authority being threatened. Um, But you may perceive Jesus posing other threats on your life. Um, Listen to some of the threatening language that Jesus uses in the Gospels. This is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. These are the words of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Okay, so Jesus tells us there that following Jesus, it means denying yourself, saying no to the stuff that you want to say yes to, taking up a cross and suffering and being misunderstood and rejected and losing your life not efficiently like life hacking and podcasting your way to like just the ultimate amazing life now, but giving that up. And instead losing your life for the sake of being found in Jesus. That is threatening to what culture is telling us as to how we should be living now. Here's some more threatening words of Jesus from Luke Chapter 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This could be another sermon. He's not telling us to hate our family. He is telling us that if we are going to follow him, he must be the most central part of our lives. He must be the greatest love of our lives. A love that exceeds family. A love that even exceeds uh, the love we have for our own selves. Um, Following Jesus means a complete uh, reprioritization of our loves and our relationships. And if you're here and maybe you're new to the faith or maybe you don't yet believe, one, I'm so glad you're here. You're so welcome to to process and explore in our midst. But maybe you feel like you're an an outsider looking in uh, on what it would be like to follow Jesus know that it's going to completely reorient how you do relationships. It's going to completely transform that. All right, these things, this is threatening to our way of life. Um, We're in a different situation than the Pharisees for sure. We're not threatened in the same way, but dying to ourselves, taking up our cross, following Jesus is incredibly threatening. And it's completely worth it. He is that good. And walking with Jesus is the very thing that you were made for. 
It feels like at times we were made to have like the best of what this culture can offer now until you taste how good Jesus is. And very quickly you will see that following Jesus is better than the stuff that this world can offer. All that this world can offer pales in comparison to a life lived in Jesus with his people. Okay, so whether you're confused, celebrating, curious about the hype, um, or your way of life is feeling threatened by Jesus, here's the invitation to you today. Come and follow this humble king. Uh, who in the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is humble, and He is our King. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for the salvation that we have in Jesus, the rescue that is ours in Him. Um, He is humble, And He is our King. And so we do fall down before Him this afternoon and we hail Him as King. We do cry out, salvation now, save us now, O King of Israel. And we know where this story goes. We know what the rest of the week will hold for Jesus. And Father, would you help us to remember His death and resurrection on our behalf as we come to the table this afternoon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.